After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. Veteran journalist and broadcaster Dame Esther Ransom first came to public attention in the BBC 1960s documentary series Man Alive before being given her own consumer affairs programme in 1973 entitled That's Life, which was responsible for the careers of singer Sheena Easton and comedy powerhouse Victoria Wood. A tireless campaigner, Esther was the mastermind behind the nationwide counselling service Childline and joined forces with the late Sir Terry Wogan for the first ever BBC Children in Need appeal in 1980. I caught up with the broadcasting legend to talk TV, charity and recollections on an unparalleled career. Ladies and gentlemen, Dame Esther Ransom. Uh, we'll talk about your more up-to-date work in just a second, but I just want to take you back to the 1960s when having worked as a researcher on a number of current affairs programmes, you moved to the award-winning BBC Two documentary series, Man Alive. Yep. In a time when women, uh, women were arguably unfairly represented on TV, mm-hmm. how important was your role in the empowerment of women at this time? Oh, well, a uh, very interesting question. I went to Man Alive as a trainee director um, at a time when I had been denied any promotion in current affairs group. And that was due to my gender. Because in current affairs group, at that time, there were people I had been to university with, worked alongside, done the same kind of writing, performing, directing that they did. And they wore straight into to roles as directors And I was told that I wouldn't get a job beyond researcher, which is why I went to Man Alive. So when I went to Man Alive, I realized that it was very important that I was good at what I did because women who failed would make it harder for the next woman to come along behind them and also get creative roles and the promotion that their talent deserved. So I, from the beginning, worked extremely hard. Um, But then what happened was, um, Bernard Braden, um, the presenter, actor, Canadian, came to the department, and suddenly my career took a great leap sideways, and instead of being a trainee director, I became a reporter, which I hadn't had in mind at all. And I thought this will never last, but strangely it did. Excellent. Um, Speaking of Braden's Week, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, when Braden returned to Canada in 1972, the Mm -hmm. BBC wanted a new consumer affairs program 
How far removed was that life from the original concept of Braden's Week? Well, the first series of That's Life was quite a long way away from Braden's Week and didn't do terribly well. So the second series of That's Life, I asked if I could produce it and was told I could. It was quite difficult. I had a rather difficult interview with the controller of BBC One, who was then Alistair Milne, who said, why should we make you a producer? And I said, because when someone presents a consumer programme, the viewers all think that they have editorial control over what they say. So I might as well have it, because then it would be true. So reluctantly, he gave me the opportunity. <clears throat> and I took it back to um, a much closer version of Braden's Week, because I was working with <clears throat> a Welshman called John Lloyd, who had written and produced Braden's Week, and he knew how to do it. He did it very well. And so he could transfer to That's Life quite easily. But as That's Life evolved over the years, again, it began to change and develop. And instead of just talking about faulty washing machines and cars that broke down, it began to talk about life and death subjects like transplantation and children who were injured in playgrounds and seatbelts in the back of cars and how important they were and eventually childline. So it took on a life of its own, <coughs> pardon my coughing, and it um, moved quite a long way from Braden's Week. Excellent. Okay, I'm making stars of Victoria Wood and Sheena Easton. In what ways did That's Live bridge the gap between consumer affairs and life entertainment? Well, it always had an entertaining format. That was its huge strength. It made people laugh, but it also made people think, and it gave them quite important information about ways of protecting themselves from danger, con men, all sorts. Now... Victoria Wood made herself a star. We didn't do that. We just saw her on a talent show and nicked her quickly. <laughs> Sheena Easton was in a different series I produced called The Big Time. And once again, all we did was give her a showcase and an opportunity. She did the rest. Excellent. Okay. Um, what's, uh, what is the legacy of that life on the consumer affairs programs that we see today? Well, I say that That's Life was the first reality show. And I think that what we established was that real people can be funnier and more entertaining than most of the professionals who um, work off scripted material. Because in our street interviews, we found some natural stars, including a little old lady called Annie Mizzen, who became greatly loved by the nation. Um, we found a dog that could talk and a cat that could play ping pong. Um, so, I mean, our legacy is, is across the genre. It's not just in consumer programs. In fact, you could say that most consumer shows are quite straightforward protection, consumer protection programs. You don't these days find consumer shows with studio audiences and talented pets.
Um, That's Life was also responsible for the launch of Childline in 1986. How critical was this is, uh, in saving the lives of thousands of vulnerable children in the UK? Well, we were um, a lifeline to them, um, protecting them from abuse, um, supporting them through tough times and, as you say, saving lives. And uh, now, as I speak to you, we have 12 bases around the country. We, are, we have helped more than 5 million children. I meet people every day who say they wouldn't be here without Childline. So it has proved to be a crucial service, and it's been copied around the world. 150 countries now have their own Childlines. That's really great. Um, in, 19, uh, in 1980, you partnered with Terry Wogan alongside Sue Lawley for the first ever seven-hour Children in Need appeal. Was Sue Lawley in it? I don't remember Sue being in it. I think that Terry and I were co-presented the first, if you like, telethon version of Children in Need. I think Sue Cook... Um, took part in a number of children in needs, though whether she took part in the first one, I don't recall. Yeah. I, I did work with Sue on Nationwide. Ah, uh, okay. Anyway, if you can, describe yeah. the sense of excitement which went around Television Centre on this monumentous event. We weren't in Television Centre. We were in a rather unpleasant hotel in Hammersmith. And it was an outside broadcast and the moment the red light went on, autocue went backwards, and Terry and I stood there looking at blank screens, which was memorable. Um, I cannot pretend it was a perfect program, but it certainly, I think, made the point, which was that up till then, the Children in Need Appeal, which started in 1937, I think, um, had been one film which raised a few thousand pounds. Suddenly, we had the ability to raise millions. And obviously, um, it became a flagship of the BBC. It became a very, very important part of the BBC's role and has been ever since. Of course. Um, just wants to just uh, find out a little bit more. Uh, how important was Television Centre to the BBC in this era? Well, Television Centre, I remember when it was just a an architect's design because my father had been head of engineering designs for the BBC and was seconded to run the United Nations telecommunications in 1950 or so. And the architects showed him the designs, and I could actually remember them being spread out on the floor. And when I went to work there, it was really exciting. I went to work there as a clock in the first place, and then gradually, as first as a researcher, um, I worked there in studios. I remember the thrill when a show I was working on did a satirical musical, and they used my hands to turn the pages of the uh, whatever it was. I think it was the months of the year that we were uh, taking, I don't know, as the theme of the musical. Anyway, and it turns out, I was sitting in the back of the control room, and then Sharon was the producer. And the, the scene man was turning over the pages, 
and Ned turned round and said, could we have some hands that were less the horny-handed sons of toil? <laughs> looked at my hands and said, Esther, you're elected. And I was so thrilled. I had makeup. I had nail varnish. I loved it. The crew were very amused by me. So I think that was my first appearance on television. <laughs> anyway, um, Television Centre has always been very special for me. It always had this sort of spark of show business and excitement. Election programmes came from there and Strictly came from there. All sorts came from there. And then the BBC went completely mad and sold it. Yeah, Josh hasn't forgiven them for that, I don't think. <laughs> nor have I. Nor have I. And with the result that now Strictly is made in Elstree, and I have no idea where the election programmes come from, but there are still a couple of working studios there. And what's so funny is that since ITV has decided to redevelop their studios on the river, on the River Thames, because it's such a valuable plot, they realized that they could make a fortune by developing it into flats and a hotel, as well as studios. The programs that used to be made there, like Loose Women and This Morning, etc., etc., and I think even Graham Norton, are now being made out of Television Centre, BBC Television Centre. Hysterical. <laughs> Hysterical. So now what you've got there is a very smart Soho house. I don't know whether it's a hotel or a restaurant. Flats and television studios. That's excellent. So it's still going today. Even it's still going today, even though it's ITV programs that mainly come out of it. <laughs> okay, after That's Life, you presented your own talk show, Esther, on yeah, BBC2. Yeah. I did. I did. Um, in what ways did this pave the way for outlandish talk shows like the Jeremy Kyle show? In no way at all. Um, Jeremy Kyle and Jerry Springer and the shock jock talk shows were happening at the same time. And um, there's no way I could do that sort of television. I haven't got what it takes. You know, it's not that I'm criticizing them, although if you like, I will. But um, for me... A talk show has really to be about a true meeting of minds. And then you get some insight and some surprises and some fun. Um, but I can't bear this sort of exploitative Jerry Springer type people wrestling together <laughs> and, and bodyguards holding them apart. That's, to me, that's, um, that may be, may be wrestling, but it ain't a talk show. What do you think the old executives of the past, like Bill Cotton age, have thought of it today, as in the Jeremy Kyle shows and things? Well, I think he was a very practical man, and he would have understood that they get big ratings, so he understood why people continue to transmit them. But he was also a kind man, um, and he had very high standards uh, um, about... Um, aspirational television as well as entertaining television so I don't think it would have been to his taste to be honest <laughs> okay um, just a couple more questions looking back at your career what's your proudest achievement well people sometimes ask me that and um, the truth is that anything that 
I've done that has turned out successfully has depended upon other people's talents, other people's commitments. I mean, if you look at Childline helping more than 5 million children, that is due to the hard work and the skill and the passionate commitment of generations of volunteers and staff. And the same with the new helpline for older people, the Silver Line. So I can take real personal pride in the fact that my houseplants are happy. And I know that's down to me because I water them. But apart from that, I'm just thrilled to have been part of such amazing teams that have turned Childline and the Silver Line and some of the programs into great successes. But I can't claim personal achievement because I was one of many. Okay. What's next for yourself? Well, I'm looking at um, program ideas that I've been asked to um, put together, put on paper, and pitch. So there's a lot of stuff um, in development at the moment. I've just finished a couple of series uh, for Channel 5, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes around the corner. I never know. Thank you very much to our guests for being the subject to another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.